Hi, folks. Welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. I want to talk to you about Amazon. That's the company Amazon. The Amazon Foundation and the website smile.amazon.com. Now, most people I know, including me, regularly use Amazon for shopping. But did you know that Amazon has a foundation? And this foundation has set aside literally millions of dollars to help nonprofit organizations just like Fig Tree Ministries. Now, to date, the Amazon Foundation has distributed close to $200 million to nonprofit organizations all around the world. So, this is money that has already been set on the table for the taking. But to move that money from the Amazon Foundation to Fig Tree Ministries, which is a 501c3 nonprofit, requires action on your behalf. By using the website smile.amazon.com and designating Fig Tree Ministries as your nonprofit organization, the Amazon Foundation will make a donation to Fig Tree on your behalf based on your shopping. So make sure you're taking full advantage of the money that Amazon has already made available. Now you'll find a link below the video in the description section that's specifically for Fig Tree Ministries. And once you set your nonprofit organization, make sure you only shop using smile.amazon.com for your shopping to count towards a donation. Now, together, by doing this, we'll make sure that money from the Amazon Foundation is going to build the kingdom of God. So don't leave money on the table. Shop at smile.amazon.com and designate Fig Tree Ministries San Diego as your ministry. And then just go shopping. Now enjoy today's lesson. So as already alluded to, starting Friday night, going into Saturday, was the biblical feast called the Feast of Trumpets. Now, we're all still sitting here, I think. So if anybody didn't hear the trumpet or did hear a trumpet, please let us know. Because this is the time of year when everybody begins to expect that Jesus is going to come back. For those of you who haven't been through one of these classes on the holidays, I'll show you why in a minute. But we're still here. Now, maybe a trumpet did blow on Friday night, and we just have to watch the outcome of this. But this is why we're going to talk about this. The Feast of Trumpets starts Friday night. And whenever these holidays come around, it's always good to go back into our Bible, to say, where do we see these holidays in the Bible? Then talk about, how does God work with these holidays? What are, what are some of the meaning behind it? And then how does Jesus interact with the holidays? So as we go through all of this, it's not so much that you, that I'm, that I'm saying anybody has to celebrate these holidays. It's the idea that, boy, we find Jesus all over the holidays, and so it's a good idea for us to pay attention to them, know something about it, and that helps solidify, enrich, really, what Jesus is up to, what God's plan of redemption is. All right, so the festival, Feast of Trumpets, we'll get there in a minute. We know it today in the Jewish name Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah, so most of you have probably heard about heard the holiday in that name, and we'll talk a little bit about Rosh Hashanah, because there's some pretty cool stuff 
the one of the things that's cool is the word shana, which translates year. It doesn't really mean year. It means to repeat something. Well, we're repeating a period of time, and so that's that makes sense. We're gonna we're gonna repeat another year. And just like we've done this class multiple times, but every time we do it, we do it a little bit different. And you've changed in the past three years since we've been teaching. So what happens is every time you hear the lesson, you'll hear it differently. Well, I'll show you in a minute. Shana means to change, but it, or I'm sorry, means to repeat, but it also means to change. So we're going to repeat this class, uh, but we're going to change a couple things on it. And when you do that, and you've changed, so every time you go back and repeat something in the Bible, you see something you didn't see before. Okay, so what I want you to do is, if you have your Bible available, turn to Leviticus 23. I'm going to be speaking mostly to those people who haven't been through one of these classes on the holidays, and the rest of you, it'll be review. God established a series of holidays, seven of them. You find them in Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 also includes the Sabbath, so we might throw that one in there. There are other holidays that have sprung up within the biblical text, like Jesus goes to Hanukkah, but that's a winter holiday and it's not necessarily in the Bible. So if we go to Leviticus 23, this is where you're going to find all seven holidays. These are the main seven. And I'm not going to read them verbatim, but as I walk through the holiday, I'll point out which verse. And if you want to follow along, it just helps to put your eyes on your Bible with what I'm saying to help solidify the information. So, again, seven holidays. They start out with Passover. And if you look at verse five, so. God says, on the 14th day of what they call the first month, we, it would be called Nisan, the 14th day of Nisan, you're going to have the Passover. And of course, Passover celebrates God delivering the Israelites from Egypt. You have the Passover lamb, you put the blood on your doorpost, the angel of death passes over your house, and then you're redeemed out of the bondage of slavery. So Passover. Next, unleavened bread happens the very next day, the 15th day of Nisan. And actually what happens here is on Passover, you sacrifice at 3 p.m. A Jewish day starts at sundown. So you sacrifice at 3 p.m. to eat the meal that starts unleavened bread starting in just a few hours. That's verse 6. Then the next holiday on the list is called First Fruits, that's verse 10, and it just says from the day after the Sabbath. Well, now we've got, as a community, we have to interpret. What does that mean? Well, Sabbath is normally Saturday, so does that mean Sunday? So you'll notice the 14th, the 15th, and then the day after the Sabbath, all three of those holidays happen in the same week. They're all bunched together in the same week, and sometimes they could be one, two, three in a row, because if unleavened bread falls on a Saturday, then Sunday, the next day, is first fruits. Okay, those are the first three holidays. Then you get verse 15. This is called the Festival of Weeks, 
Now, weeks in Hebrew, Shavuot. And God says, I want you to count seven weeks. Well, seven weeks, seven times seven, 49 days. Then on the very next day, the 50th day, which in Greek, Pentecost, you're going to now celebrate the next holiday. So the festival of weeks. Then the fifth holiday, Feast of Trumpets. This is verse 24, and this is where we are today. So this is why we're talking about these holidays. And one thing we note about the Festival of Trumpets is it's on the first day of the month. Now, it happens to be the seventh month, but it happens on the, it's the only holiday that starts on the first day of the month. That's going to enter the story. Why? Because a Jewish month starts, or it's a Jewish calendar is by the moon. So the month starts when the moon comes out. And in the first century, so in Jesus' day, the moon, the, the very new sliver of the moon had to be seen from Jerusalem in order for the holiday to be declared beginning. And you would have a series of mountaintop signals that would say, you know, if you're living way up north in Galilee, somebody would come running and say, the Feast of Trumpets has started because some, we saw the moon. So, for instance, this is looking out my window the other night, Friday evening, the night sky at twilight, and it's hard to see, but right there is a sliver of the moon. That means the new month is here. And if I go a little bit closer, there you can see I zoomed in a little bit, but that's how you know that the holiday has started. So, there's a metaphor going on here. When does the holiday begin? When does the Feast of Trumpets begin? Well, nobody really knows the day or the hour, so you have to be prepared. You have to anticipate. You have to Now, clearly it's metaphor because anybody who can count to 30 and has lived longer than you know, any school-age kid can figure out, well, a month is 30 days. I can figure out when. But the idea is, if you don't see the moon, the month doesn't start, right? So you've got this, it's a cool picture of your anticipation to hear the announcement of the holiday and the blowing of the trumpet. And that's the festival of trumpets. And it's going to enter the story with Jesus, of course. So that's what we saw this past Friday night. Um, and now by the time we get to two weeks from now, which will be the third, well, I'll show you the next. So that's Feast of Trumpets. Um, next, Day of Atonement. That's going to be next Sunday evening, so 10 days later. So we have the first day of the month, then the 10th day of the month. Day of Atonement, that's verse 27, if you want to look down on that. Um, that's one day. And so that, yeah, that'll be next Sunday evening. And then five days after that, you get the final festival, which is called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Tabernacles. And that begins, now notice the 15th day of that month is going to be a full moon. So now you've got a full moon out, and it's going to start an eight-day-long celebration to thank God for all of his provision. It's a fall festival, like Thanksgiving, and you're going to pray that God will bring rain again. It's a huge celebration, joyous celebration. Okay. So just like these holidays at the top, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, all happen in the span of one week, the bottom three 
Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Festival of Tabernacles, they all happen in the course of two weeks or over the, that's actually over the course of three weeks, but they're all in the same month. So if you've heard the designation of the high holidays, now we're in the high holidays. All right, those are the seven holidays. And of course, we're right here at number five, Feast of Trumpets. And we'll talk about this today, why it matters. All right, so the, the main point, of course, is we're approaching these holidays from the Christian perspective. And they're in our Bible, they're in Leviticus 23. They were, they're celebrated from the, well, from the time that they come out of the Exodus all the way through Jesus' day. Even Paul continues to celebrate these holidays. So we want to look at how do these holidays interact with Jesus, right? Or how does Jesus interact with the holiday? Because what happens is, in some way, shape, or form, he is the fulfillment of the holiday. We look for the meaning of the holiday or the symbolism, and then we look at the meaning of Jesus and the symbolism, and lo and behold, they match. And you say, whoa, God is up to something. God is coordinated. That's pretty cool. So let's walk through these. If we go back to our list of holidays, first one, Passover. Well, Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's God's Passover lamb. Just like the very first Passover lamb, the blood, if you're covered in the blood of that Passover lamb from Exodus, the spirit of death passes over you and you're released from the bondage of slavery. Well, what does the blood of Jesus do? The same thing. We're all covered in the blood. We're all released from the bondage of slavery by the blood of the Lamb. Every gospel will point out, as the crucifixion is coming, that Passover and these holidays, unleavened bread, are coming up. Now, why do they do that? Well, they're, point, they're painting a picture. It's like looking at a mural rather than a scientific document, right, that explains everything. They're painting a picture of Jesus as the Lamb. Same idea as that Passover lamb. I think what's cool is this time it's God offering the lamb, not human beings. And oh, it's something only God can do. Okay, that's the first holiday. Well, what about the next holiday? Unleavened bread. Well, who's the bread of the world? Jesus is, but he's unleavened bread. Leaven is a picture of sin. And so if Jesus is the bread of the world, well, he's not puffed up with leaven, he's unleavened bread. So Jesus dies as the lamb, and he's buried, he's planted in the ground as the unleavened bread of the world, and the whole nation on this holiday is praying, God, give us bread from the earth, and the bread of the world is about to come out of the earth on first fruits, the next holiday. So, first fruits, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, and Paul, Paul calls him that. Paul also calls him the Passover lamb. Now, if you remember, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits all happen in the same week, and first fruits, day after the Sabbath, would be Sunday. So, what day did Jesus come out of the ground? Sunday. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. So, we celebrate Easter, the biblical holiday would be first fruits. So, just think about that. Jesus dies as the Passover lamb, he's buried as the unleavened bread, and he's raised as the first fruits. One, two, three. That's not a mistake, and sometimes when Christians first see this, it's like, well, that's kind of cute. You're like, no, that's God. He's coordinated, and Jesus is telling a story of, of God's redemption with these holidays. 
Okay, that's the first three. What's next, right? Jesus rises from the grave. He walks around for 40 days. He then says to his disciples, go to the temple. I'll be back in 10 days, right? So you get the Feast of Weeks, what we call Greek Pentecost, 50 days. So Jesus walks around for 40 days, ascends to be with God, and 10 days after his ascension, the Holy Spirit shows up. So he's four for four. He's hit all four holidays. That, to me, every time I talk about it, gives me goosebumps because you think, that's cool. God knows what he's doing. All right, so if that's the, if that's the first four holidays that Jesus, he's now ascended and sent the Holy Spirit, what are we all waiting for him to do? Well, we're all waiting for him to return, and his return is going to be announced through the blowing of a trumpet. And that's why, as we started out our class today, we're still here. The, the rapture, at least if the, if, if the rapture is, you know, it depends on how you view this whole idea of, of what's going to happen in the end times. But the Festival of Trumpets, right, announces the return. And so this time of year, everybody starts to look for the return of God, the Messiah, to come back and pull all his people together for the final judgment. Well, that's pretty cool. So we go, okay, Festival of Trumpets happens. However God's going to work that out, I'm, I'm at this point convinced that however God works it out will be fine with me. The very next thing you have is the Day of Atonement, and Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, so that fits too. And once your sins are atoned for, you enter into a giant party, right? Jesus, the whole idea of tabernacles, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, is this idea of the living water of God. And Jesus even says in John, I'm the living water at the Feast of Tabernacles. So you end, you end up in what we would call this heavenly party. It's an eight-day festival. It's just amazing to me. You have all seven holidays on this side. And then those holidays, Jesus basically, in symbol, fulfills each one. Or in some way, shape, or form, is a fulfillment of or interacting with and these holidays are, are a picture of God's redemption. God wants to pull you out of the bondage of slavery. He wants to take you out to be his own. He wants to dust you up and go through the process of sanctification with the Holy Spirit. But one day he's going to call you home and ask for an account. And so there's judgment involved. And then you enter into the joy of the Lord, which would be the Festival of Tabernacles. So it's actually a picture of God's redemption. It's, it's, it's an amazing picture. One of the mistakes Christians make is we all will often look at only one holiday at a time. Like you pull out Pentecost and only talk about Pentecost, but not in the whole scope of all seven holidays. So, all right, so that's where we're at today. Jesus is interacting with these holidays. He's fulfilling these holidays. And we we're waiting for that trumpet blast of God to tell us that now the it's time for judgment. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is this idea of standing before God. So I'm going to give you one example and explain a little bit of this example to help out. There's, there's many more that talk about the, the idea that there's going to be a trumpet blast, and the trumpet blast is going to call us back. It wakes you up, right? It's, you get woke. That trumpet blast is a shrill, and it's there to get your attention, to say, pay attention to the coming judgment. 
in a sense. This is, again, metaphor. And it's a call to repentance. It's a call to regathering. It's all of that that brings you, and one day you're going to stand, as Paul calls it, in front of the Bema seat of Christ as in some form of judgment. So, one way that Paul relates this idea is he's talking to the people at Thessalonians. So, if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians 4.16, and the people in Thessalonia are a little bit concerned that the that people who have died have missed out on the on Jesus return as Paul's writing he's he's almost convinced that Jesus is coming back and you could probably see why if you understand those holidays even the disciples the disciples had to assume that very first year that Jesus died he was coming back that next holiday he hadn't missed it he hasn't missed a beat so Paul is he's wrapped up in these holidays too the people in Thessalonia are worried did we miss out? Well, Paul's going to say, no, 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 you didn't miss out. But check out, the. I want to show you the words he uses. So 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and then here's our reference to the trumpet, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now, why that? Why the sound of the trumpet of God? And then it says, and the dead in Christ will be raised first. That's actually the picture that Matthew shows when Jesus resurrects, you also see righteous people who resurrected within the city. But why this language? Why the sound of the trumpet of God? Who's blowing the trumpet at that point? So they noted something in the Old Testament. This will explain why Paul uses this language. When God delivered through the blood of the Passover lamb, delivers the, the nation of Israel out to uh, Mount Sinai, they get to the foot of Mount Sinai and they hear a trumpet blast. That's in, in Exodus. Now, who's blowing the trumpet? Well, it's either the, an archangel or it's God. It's, it's, the, it's the one blast that's coming from God. And then they note, from that point on, God says, okay, now you guys blow the trumpet, right? We're going to be co-creators in this business. You wake each other up and say, pay attention, you know. But one day, they noted, God will blow the second trumpet. And when that second trumpet blows, watch out, because now the whole, the whole thing is coming in for judgment. So the fact that he uses the phrase, the trumpet of God, tells you he's talking about the call back to judgment of all humanity. And it's not going to be because a human being blew a trumpet. It's going to be because God blew a trumpet. So that's just one example of how you can... The Feast of Trumpets enters in even in, our, even in Paul's epistles, um, because Paul's engaging throughout the entire rest of our New Testament. He's engaging with the, the holidays just like Jesus did. Now let's go. We'll talk a little bit about the Festival of Trumpets. To expand on this a little bit, I mentioned at the beginning, the Bible calls it the Festival of Trumpets. It's a very short passage in Leviticus that says, I want you to blow a, a trumpet. And then you, it's up to the community to figure out, well, what does God want? What is, what's the trumpet represent? You know, what are we supposed to do? I mean, it doesn't really say. So as you, as a community, just like we do with our holidays, you start to weave the meaning of things into the holiday. 
because God leaves that up to you. He wants us to be co-creators with him and figure this stuff out. So today, this is today, you get the name Rosh Hashanah or Rosh Hashanah. It means literally the head of the year. Now, just a few slides ago, I told you that it's the seventh month. And so there seems to be these two calendars going. The seventh month of the year becomes the new year. And that's exactly right. If you have a Jewish friend and you want to wish them a new happy new year, you do it on Rosh Hashanah, you, not on January 1st. That's our new year. So there's a number of reasons behind this. I have another video on the reasons behind why you call it a New Year celebration. We did that a couple years ago, but we're not going to do that today, but I just want you to know it has to do with agriculture. There's a number of New Year cycles, even in the midst of one whole year. It gets a little confusing. Okay, but it's a time of renewal. And again, if it's an agricultural cycle, it's the time when you harvest all the plants, and then you're going to say, okay, God, send us rain for the next year, and they connected the blessing of rain with obedience and your relationship with God. God says, I'll bless you with rain. Okay, well, then I better get back, and that's why I have to go back and um, go through this process of renewal with God. It's like an annual renewal event so that God will bless us in the year ahead with rain. We tend to think a little bit the same way. You know, you got to get right with God, get back to God so you can receive his blessing. So one thing I want to show you, and I alluded to it in the beginning, is something about this word Shana. And this is really cool, what God did. The, the word that God uses for a year, Shana, is what we would call an antagonim. So an antagonim is a word that has two meanings, and the two meanings are opposite each other. So for instance, to cleave. Right? So if you cleave, well, you can cleave to one another. That means to come together. Or you can cleave meat. And to cleave meat means you're separating the meat. Citation is another one. Did you get a citation from the policeman? Or did you get a citation from the city for the great work that you've done? It's an, anti- it's an antagonism. And when you look at it, it goes like this. So the first one is to repeat. You're repeating a period of time. You're repeating a a year, right? But at the same time, it means to change. So I'm going to repeat. This is why it's a time of renewal. I'm going to repeat another year, but I'm going to do it differently. So you come back and it's a period of reflection on the past year and a period of reflection and introspection on yourself to say, how can I redo this year? I'm going to have to live another year again. Let me go through an entire process to say, how can I do it better, right? You repeat something and then change. Now, all of you have done this. In fact, we do it, even the most secular atheist of atheists in our communities go through a ceremony every year where they make a resolution that says, I'm going to repeat this next period of time, but I'm going to do it differently. And that's what we do every new year. It's a new year celebration. So this is kind of cool because God 
created a, a, the word for year to have both meanings. I want you to repeat the same period of time, but I want you to change. I want you to do something different. And then he gives us as human beings almost a compulsion to, to want to renew time, right? Father time is getting old and baby new year is coming in. It's, it's being born again. You know, how many people are going to be so excited to get rid of 2020? Like we can't wait for 2020 to be over and usher in something new the way this year is gone. So it's a God-ordained word, and it's actually what we do is to go through a process where we want to change, and it causes us to repent, it causes us to introspect, and then, of course, after a few weeks past the new year, all of our sinful habits come right back, and we need to go back and do this every year. So it's just a cool little uniqueness to this idea of Shana. Now, there's one, this is a piece I've not talked about yet. Well, wait a minute, maybe I did. I want to add something more. I'm going to change it a little bit. The month leading up to this holiday of of trumpets and the Day of Atonement, because that's when you got to go stand before the king to be judged, is called the month of Elul. And I want to show you something that's really cool about that month of Elul and what, what they do with that, they being the rabbis, to teach the importance of the month of Elul leading up to this time of trumpets and uh, Day of Atonement. So it looks kind of like this. If on a calendar you have the Festival of Trumpets, that's the first day of the month, followed by the Day of Atonement. So you have the first day, then 10 days later, Day of Atonement, and that makes this little bracket where you would say, why 10 days? Well, all the nations are going to be brought before God, and he's going to separate the, the sheep from the goats. That's the picture of judgment, the, the heavenly judgment. But they say, you know, this is such an important thing to do, to go stand in front of God. Well, we better start our preparation way back here, right? So the, so the month prior, this is like a month leading up, the month of Elul, I'll, get, I'll show you why I keep repeating that, is you're going to spend the month of Elul. They, the tradition is they start blowing the shofar even in Elul to start waking people up. So if we look at the word Elul, that's the month that leads up, that's the sixth month, even the word Elul means to become pure. It's a process of, I'm going to go through a, a little bit of a purification process. I, this is something that we would do with our Lent. So Lent, leading up to the Holy Week, is a way to do something in your life that becomes uh, a focus on maybe repentance or forgiveness. There's introspection. There's spiritual preparation because we've got these holy days coming up. And then in the month of Elul, you go through some spiritual disciplines, and the main one being fasting. So you fast, you start practicing, and that is a way of getting your spirit ready to interact with God. And Christians still do fasting for the same reason. So if we look at this again, if we go back to our calendar, you've got a 10-day period here. That's the 1st to the 10th. You've got an entire 30-day month here. 10 plus 30, right? Math for Marines says that's 40 days. So. Have you ever heard of this? A period of 40 days that's marked by fasting. And I would say, 
Of course we have, right? If you're thinking of Moses, you'd be absolutely right. So Moses, don't turn there because we don't have time, but Moses goes up with God. The reason that this becomes associated with Moses is if Passover was in March to April, then they get to Mount Sinai sometime around the Festival of Weeks. Then as Moses is going to ascend to heaven, or ascend to heaven, ascend to God on the mountain, and the text says here, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. That would be somewhere around the month of Elul. And so the tradition within Judaism becomes for 40 days and 40 nights around Elul leading up to the Day of Atonement. And then it says, Moses neither ate bread nor drank water. Well, if Moses is your, the symbol you're following, then you're going to go through this 40-day period around the month of Elul where you're going to go through some fasting because that's what Moses did. And so you follow that model, right? Well, who else does 40 days and 40 nights of fasting? Well, Jesus, of course. So in Matthew 2, it tells us he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. So we tend to think we don't connect Jesus fasting 40 days and 40 nights with Moses. We don't do that. And then we also don't connect it with Elul. But scholars say, well, when's a period of time within first century Judaism where you have 40 days marked by fasting? It's right here. You're in the month of Elul. You're leading up to this festival of uh, trumpets, Day of Atonement. So the picture would be Jesus is baptized. He goes through this 40-day period of fasting sometime around Elul, going into the seventh month. And then right around Feast of Tabernacles, which is the, the celebration where the whole congregation is shouting, save now, Jesus comes out and starts his ministry as God's salvation to the world. So there's a lot of detail in all these holidays where you'd say, it's likely that Jesus fasting 40 days is right, is, is, coincides with this holiday right here. So let's talk about month of Elul. Elul leads up to the Festival of Trumpets, that's hearing the waking up, to go stand before God, and the Day of Atonement, where, where God's going to forgive all of your sins. And, you know, we always have to think of God and these ideas in using metaphor. It's the most helpful way to do it. So, there's two metaphors happening. One of them, first one, is that God is a king, and I've mentioned that a couple times. You're going to go stand before the king to be judged. That's common throughout the ancient Near East. It's common in the biblical text because the idea, the covenant that's created between God and Israel back in Exodus is a covenant between a king and, their, and his subjects. So God is king is all over the text. That's one, one metaphor. The other one is way cooler. And that metaphor has to do with God as a bridegroom. In Jewish thought, when, when God brought his, took his people out to Mount Sinai, what we're witnessing is like a marriage covenant. Now, it's in metaphor again, so it's not, it obviously doesn't match completely our picture of marriage, but it's a marriage covenant. It's two, two beings entering into a relationship through a covenant that creates a new relationship on the other side. So 
they picture God as the bridegroom and Israel as the bride. Now, what does our, how do we speak about the church, right? We speak about the church as the bride of Christ. So that's not a new metaphor from the New Testament. That's the Jewish picture of God being the bridegroom. And then it gets transformed in the New Testament to say, now the church is the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom, extending that metaphor. So I want to talk about this next idea as imagine that you're in preparation to meet your bridegroom. Say you're every year you're going to go renew your wedding vows. You're about to go through this ceremony. What are you going to, how are you going to prepare, right? You don't want to show up, you know, disheveled and everything. You're going to go through a process of preparation. Maybe you'll even fast a couple days, you know, drop a couple pounds before your, your wedding, your renewing of the vows. So you'll incorporate some fasting in there. But it's the idea that you're going to come back. It's not just a, it's not just a holiday because God said so. It's a chance to come back and reestablish that connection with God as the bridegroom. So Jesus even tells a parable, right? He tells the parable about the, the brides, that who's, who's going to be prepared? You don't know the day or the hour that that, that groom is going to come and collect you as, as the bride. So you can see this metaphor throughout the text. So I want to look at it as, imagine that you're the bridegroom. You're going to meet your partner. And this is so cool with the, what they did with this word. The word Elul in Hebrew looks like this. Now, clearly, I'm not attempting to show you how to read Hebrew or teach Hebrew at all. But it's this word, and I'll show you why we have to look at it in a minute. And of course, Hebrew reads in the opposite direction, but it's an Aleph Lamed Vav Lamed. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you, and I apologize for just throwing words out there, but Elul. So here's what they do with this word, because this is the whole month, and it means something having to do with purification, right? You're going to, again, you're going back to see your bridegroom and renew your vows. So if we take this word Elul, and we make an acrostic out of it, right? We're going to make something where you look at each letter is going to be the beginning of something. So then I put up, if I put up the Hebrew now, the Aleph Lamed, Vav Lamed, and you'd say, well, so what, right? We don't, that doesn't mean anything to us. But the rabbis say, you know what? Those four letters are the first letters of four words that create a sentence in our Old Testament. And so maybe there's a connection, right? The, the rabbi said every single word that's in that Bible is there because God put it there. And so if you can make connections to help you understand God, do it. I mean, the literary connections are amazing. So here's the phrase. I'm going to give it to you in Hebrew and then in English. It goes like this. Ani, which is the Aleph right there. Ani, la dodi, udodi, le'i. Now, you all know this, whether you, well, you don't know it, but you know it. And of course, the acrostic goes the Aleph, the Lamed, the Vav, and the Lamed. Now, what does that, how does that translate into English? I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. And that's right out of the Song of Solomon. Again, picture you're in preparation to go back to meet the bridegroom. And so they even notice that, look, the month that's taking us to go back into relationship with God and is the same one that 
we can connect to this idea of getting back together with my beloved. Now, if you think about something that happens when we stand at a distance, if we don't know anything about these holidays, we read it in Leviticus, and we can conjure up whatever we think about it. Well, legalism, or they just, they were cold-hearted about how they went through their holidays, and sure, there's some of that, because that, that can happen to anybody, but does that picture look cold-hearted or legalistic? No way. That looks like you're excited to come back into relationship with, with your husband, in, in, metaphorically. And, you know, one of my, it was a, a teacher that we had over in Jerusalem, he said exactly this. He's like, you know, people have a completely wrong conception of how we view commandments and how, why we obey God, because we picture it to be a relationship, like a spouse, you know. Don't you want to make your spouse happy? The idea of going through this process is a way to connect back with God. And so they don't see it as a burden, where sometimes from the outside, we don't understand what the heck is going on. So it's, this is a little bit, well, let me show you. If, you. if I say the word commandment, I say God gives us this commandment. The word commandment carries the connotation of basically, wah, wah. I mean, we, you know, somebody says you have to obey God, commandment, and everybody goes, boo, something like that. We just don't like the word commandment. There's a negative connotation to it. That's our English, though, and there's a problem with that, because that makes it sound like it's something we don't want to do. Where in Hebrew, the commandment, or the, the word for commandment, is mitzvah. So you guys know a mitzvah. Do a mitzvah. A mitzvah is to do, to do a good deed, to, to obey God. And what the rabbis note is that inside of that word, mitzvah, is savah. And that, that base word, savah, again, I apologize for just throwing Hebrew at you this morning, but it's so cool. It means to bind or connect. So in a literal sense, a commandment is a way that you connect with God. How do I connect with God? Love your neighbor. And in, in you acting out loving your neighbor, you establish a connection with God. And it's almost like the co-creator, right? God wants to bring shalom to the world, and it happens through your paying attention, right? So don't lie. Becomes a way that you can bind and connect to God. I mean, telling the truth makes you stronger, lying makes you weaker, and it creates chaos in the world. That's the opposite of what God wants. Now, if you could go through life thinking, well, if every commandment has to do with binding to God, well, then I don't look at the commandment and say, well, I don't have to do that anymore. I look at the commandment and say, how does that help me connect to God? And if it helps me to connect to God, then I'll be happy to wake up every day. You know, why do you tell your spouse, that I love you every day, because it helps you connect to your spouse. If you don't do that, the connection breaks down. So I just want you to, I'm trying to paint a little bit different picture of these holidays. If you've never thought about it, it's, it's totally a way to connect with God. And in the idea that you're in a relationship and you have to constantly nurture that relationship, just like we do, we go to church and we do holidays and all that. So all right, let me, we're going to finish this up, and I'm going to finish it up a little bit off topic, but I just want to tell you a little story, because we talked about that, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. 
So this is a total story, has nothing to do with the Feast of Trumpets, but it's just a cool story. So Bonnie and I were in Jerusalem, and I was taking a class, and we had been there, she had been there about a week, and then she was going to be heading home, and I was going to stay there for the class. So we're in our last night, and it happened to be a Tuesday. I'll tell you why that's important in a minute. It happens to be a Tuesday, and we're, we're walking. We had gone out to the Temple Mount, so we had just been on that eastern wall of that Temple Mount, and then we cruise back around, and we're making our way through the old city of Jerusalem. And a few years before we were there, I had lost my wedding ring. Uh, I went to the YMCA, I lost my wedding ring, and so we spent a couple years everywhere we went looking at wedding rings to try to find a replacement. And no matter what we found, I just didn't like it. Something didn't sit right. So we're walking through Jerusalem. It's a Tuesday, and we keep seeing weddings. And these are like Orthodox weddings, where the females are on one side, the males on the other side. There's a partition in between. I mean, it's like, it's full-on Orthodox Jewish weddings. And we kept thinking, well, that's a little strange. Why would they have weddings on a Tuesday night, right? This doesn't make any sense. So anyways, we go walking our way up, and we end up at this store. It's called Shorashim. Shorashim comes from a word that means roots, and uh, it's, a, it's a biblical shop. It's in the, the Jewish, it's in the old Jerusalem in the Jewish quarter. So you can find them on the internet if you Google Shorashim in the old city or Jerusalem. So anyways, we go inside this little shop, and on the counter is a whole container of rings. And I look at the rings, and I thought, oh, that's kind of cool because the ring says this. It says exactly what we just saw, right? I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. So all these rings had this saying on them. And so I said, well, here, let me find one that fits me. And I'm telling you, the moment I put that ring on, I knew that was the replacement ring. It was, it was the strangest feeling in the world. So I still have it today. And it's comes it has that little biblical text on it and um so it was kind of cool we 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 started telling them the story the guy the owner the shop owner the story about me losing the ring and we're going to find this one and thankfully it was only $8 so you know that's a good thing too and uh so i said to the guy why do we keep seeing weddings right why do we pass it's a tuesday night why do we keep seeing weddings and very typical very typical of a, say, a Jewish rabbi, he doesn't answer my question. He gives me a question. So he looks at me and he says, what day of the week did Jesus go to a wedding in Cana? Now he knows the New Testament. He's an Orthodox Jew, but he knows the New Testament. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I know that Jesus was at a wedding in Cana, but I have no idea. And he says, he went to a wedding on the third day of the week. And the third day of the week in a Jewish, cal or a Jewish week is Tuesday. So you have a Jewish tradition of getting married on Tuesday, and that shows up in our New Testament, that Jesus went to Cana on a Tuesday. And that's the traditional day that you do weddings. So let me just show you real quick from John. It says this, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana. And so then I said, well, why the third day? What's the, what's the reference? And he says this, well, 
when God was creating the earth, right? Because you just, everything goes back to that creation story. In Genesis, when the, he gets to the third day, there's two blessings. Two times on that third day, God says, it was good. So if you go back and read Genesis 1, twice on the third day. So the tradition within Judaism is that you get married on the third day because that's the day that received double blessing at creation. And by the way, you find the same tradition in the book of John, which is just, it was very cool. I just wanted to share with you that little story about us getting the wedding ring because it has to do with, I am my beloved and, I, and my beloved is mine. And I think that so often, if we can explore every single commandment and say, how does that get me to move closer to God? We would find some amazing things that we wouldn't necessarily think of. And that's exactly what, that's what the rabbis do. They explore all these commandments and try to find a way that you can connect with God. And the holidays, of course, are one of them. So I'm not trying to make anybody, this is not in any way saying you have to be Jewish. I think in the Christian context, you have every right, based on Jesus interacting with these holidays, to say, you know what, I'm going to look at the holidays too. I gather with a group of people. That's what you always get in community. You always have food, and you can celebrate what God is up to in the symbolism of that holiday. And that brings some extraordinary depth. You know, anytime you can pull Leviticus into your, you know, our New Testament context of Christian worship, that's a, that's a positive thing. It really it solidifies and strengthens the foundation of our faith. So that is very quickly Festival of Trumpets. Now, because next Sunday is Day of Atonement, we'll look at Jesus as the atoning sacrifice, because we want to honor the Day of Atonement on the Day of Atonement, and Jesus as the atoning sacrifice. And then the, the week after that, we'll look at Jesus's interaction with the Festival of Tabernacles to understand what's going on with tabernacles because that is really just on my bucket list is to be in Jerusalem during tabernacles.